You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Soap here, excited to be joined by Mini Galati from one of our favorite fellows classes, the 2011 crew. Haven't connected with her in a while, so excited to catch up and hear what she's up to. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. All right, Mindy. Yeah, it's been almost what almost ten years since 2011's class. What do you remember about the experience? I loved my experience at NLC. I think the thing I remember the most is just making such great friends who I still keep up with, and I learned so much about myself. And what was really exciting was I got pregnant during the <laughs> NLC uh, during the NLC fellowship time. So my whole life changed in many ways during that during that period. And then how long from when the fellowship ended to when you moved to Texas? I moved to Texas the summer of 2012. Yeah. So it was about it was about a year later, I guess. And you went for a job opportunity or what was the main reason for going in the first place? My husband grew up in Houston and we had family in Austin. And so we, after having our child, we decided to, to move to Austin and check it out. And uh, uh, he'd always kind of wanted to come back to Texas. And I had never lived in Texas or really spent much time there. So it was a another big change for me. So moving from a blue progressive state like California to, to Texas, what are some of the things that immediately jumped out at you and what's changed over time? Uh, well, everybody told me Austin was very progressive. <laughs> and when I got here, it's not true. So don't believe the hype. Okay. Um, Austin's awesome. Um, it is in the city itself, very progressive and blue, but everywhere around it is not. And then obviously we have terrible governors and attorney general. And uh, so it is red, red, red all around. Um, I moved to a city outside of Austin called Lakeway. I now live in a city called Bee Cave, which is next door to it. We're only about 20 minutes from the city, but it is red. And so it was, it was surprising. Um, I am always um, out and proud about who I am, whatever whatever that means to anybody. But I uh, I was out and proud when I moved here, and I soon found that um, if you if people were progressive or liberal or voted for Democrats, they kept it very quiet where I was living. Um, and so people would say things to me like, "Oh, you know, there's just really red out here. You know, kind of be careful," um, which was a little bit shocking to me. Yeah. And then I, it's always fun catching up with with folks like you because I feel like I kind of know what you're doing based on Facebook stuff or things I'll see here and there in social media. Um, so from what I can tell, you're still in the field of law and you're talking to a lot of people about important issues. Uh, how close am I or how would you describe what you're actually doing these days? Yeah, so I'm still a licensed attorney in California and Texas, um, but primarily I do diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting. So what that looks like is I go into businesses, law firms, and nonprofits and help them make strategic plans around diversity and inclusion efforts, whether it be hiring, um, retaining people, um, making a uh, innovative and inclusive culture. And I use my legal skills to understand risk mitigation, um, understand employment law, and um, basically I'm just trying to change the world of work for the better for women and people of color. And then what spectrum of company success with DEI issues are you seeing? Are you uh, shocked at some? Are you, for the most part, entering into companies that have already started these conversations? So there's a little bit of progress or understanding. What, what do you actually see when you go in these places? I see um, everything. So <laughs> I see some companies who have, have to Google what diversity and inclusion means, and they've never thought about it. Um, and then I have companies that um, are very on top of things. And so they're bringing me in 
to uh, further the conversation that has already started and make sure their policies and procedures are in line. Um, you know, some of my clients want me to do white privilege trainings. They want me to get really deep into understanding anti-racism work. And some of them don't want me to do that. They want me to talk about uh, the very nuts and bolts of what it looks like to be diversity, uh, diverse and inclusive. What's interesting, unfortunately, as a lawyer, is that the law firms tend to be very far behind mm. um, the rest of the world in progress in this area. It's a very white male dominated entrenched industry um, where a lot of clients push that as well. So that's the I would say that's the most uh, difficult area to go in, but they're the it's the most needed. Um, women drop out of law very quickly. Um uh, after their career start, and uh, people of color see hardly any representation in partnerships um, or the top of law firms, and so I'm really trying to change that narrative. Um, and then with businesses, that you know they're coming in for all sorts of reasons, but most businesses understand the the business case for having an inclusive and diverse culture in terms of um, innovation and profitability. So those you know typically start. Um, a little bit ahead of where some other organizations start. And then what's your own internal dialogue like about doing DEI work, but yourself being a white person and the privilege that comes with that? Um, what kind of ways have you thought through that? Yeah, so I think about that all the time. Um, and, you know, a, a couple realizations that I have is that, um, unfortunately, if I get if I get a call from a company that wants me to do implicit bias trainings, um, and they've called a handful of other people. Uh, they're they're usually hiring me because of their implicit bias uh, favoring you know white people. Mm. Um, what I do with that is I use that as an example when I do my trainings. Um, I hold their feet to the fire. I have what I call conversations on implicit bias. It's not just me talking at them. Um, I really try to dig deep with my um, with my groups to get to a level of understanding of both their privilege and how it's affecting the workplace. Um, and then I spend a lot of my time uh, trying to find, um, you know, either work or uh, speaking events or other, you know, other inroads for women of color who do this work. Um, I don't think that um, I want to occupy all of the space. I want to make sure that if they're not getting, you know, if women of color are not getting let in the door or men of color, people of color in general, that I'm going to um, you know, bring the key to open that door and help them get in. And so I, I, you know, leverage my power and my privilege in order to help uh, people of color get into places that are resistant. Um, and it's unfortunate. Uh, and, and that's why this work is really necessary. Yeah, that makes sense. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Mindy's work on this topic and also hear a little bit more about life in Texas. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. So, Mindy, are most of these speaking engagements you're having, are they one-offs? Are you doing a series over time? Can you see real long-term term growth? Like, what are you able to do in terms of tracking folks' progress on these DEI topics? Yeah, so typically I'm called to do a one-off talk, but what I encourage my clients to do is to take it the step further, and so they do that. I usually do a three-part series um, of conversations, both about implicit bias. I usually start there. Then I talk about what an inclusive culture really looks like. And then I talk about the ethics of all of this um, in uh, workplace. I usually separate management from staff in these conversations so people are more candid with their responses. 
And then um, a handful of my clients hire me as as what I've coined a virtual diversity officer. Hmm. So that's a role that you know big companies have a diversity officer, chief, chief diversity officer, but smaller businesses don't have the resources um, to do that, and so they'll hire me as a semi present. Uh, a semi-permanent presence at the company to come in and get to know the company. And then I can make strategic plans around um, equity and inclusion. So it's not just a one-off conversation. Not one conversation is ever going to change a company. And I like to hold them accountable. And what I have seen is the staff really like seeing me come in there, whether it be once a month or once a quarter, um, and make sure that I'm evaluating where the company is and, and if they're making if they're making progress. And I've seen some amazing progress in the organizations I work with. Um, I've created some some major waves at companies that have you know that have started new policies and procedures that have you know had people leave and new people join. And I'm really proud of it. It's it's really awesome to work behind the scenes to see it happening. And when you get hired for the first time at a company, do you? in your mind or maybe even something more tangible on, on paper or some sort of plan you write, do you do some sort of DEI audit to get a baseline of where the company is? How do you ascertain where they where you would even start in terms of supporting them? Yeah, so it depends on the size of the company, um, but I do do uh, an evaluation phase before I do any trainings or any conversations um, internally. And that typically looks like what are their demographics? What are their pain points? Who are they hiring? Who's who's leaving? Who's at the top um, in management? What does the staff look like? Um, and then I do interviews before I do any of my training. So I interview um, any you know anybody that I think uh, I would need to talk to, and then from those people they refer me to others. And so these could be any level in the in the in the organization. Um, I always talk to the CEO or founder. Um, and I like to hear from individual employees, both new employees and employees who have been there for a while, to get a, a handle on what's really going on. Because uh, usually in these conversations, that guides my formulation of a plan in the workshop. None of my workshops are are uh, cookie cutter. They're all uh, made after um, an analysis of what the company looks like um, and then some some pretty candid conversations ahead of time. Got it. Makes sense. Well, listen, I'm glad you're, you're doing that work. And, and last thing I want to ask you, and we've asked all folks who've come on who have kiddos, you know, what's been your strategy or plan to raise progressive kids? Great question. Well, my kids, um, I, I run a political group here in the Lake Travis area, and they go with me to these things. And we have, a they're six and seven years old. Uh, my six-year-old is a, a born activist, mm. um, but I fill our library with, I'm very intentional in my parenting. Um, I am intentional in teaching them things like consent. I'm intentional about teaching them about their heritage. Um, they are not white. My children are um, Iranian, Indian, and uh, white. And so they, they are brown kids. They don't present as white. And they're going to have a different experience than I do. So we talk through these issues um, on age-appropriate levels, but they understand their relationship to the world um, and I, a friend of mine told me to raise my kids pro-black, not just, uh, you know, not just uh, to appreciate black people, but pro-black. Mm -hmm. And he gave me a reading list and I've been following it and we fill our house, house and all the shows that they watch. I cultivate their content with strong black characters, um, so that they see, 
uh, dark skin like their dad has and like the people that were around a lot um, as being, you know, a source of pride um, and, and, and people to look up to. And so I'm really intentional about raising my kids and I'm definitely raising little activists. Hopefully they will follow my footsteps and be in NLC classes down the road, but they definitely um, are out there on the, on the front lines with me, whether it be at protests or creating a political movement or having conversations with their classmates. They have conversations with their classmates about mm-hmm. Trump. They talk about their classmates about toys not being gendered. Um, if, a, if a kid says that's a girl color or that's a boy color, they're the first ones to say there's no such thing and explain what that means. And so, um, and I do it in age appropriate levels so that they can tell the story as well. So that's some of the things that I'm doing. Love it. And we'll see next generations. It's always, always good to hear. Uh, well, listen, thanks for coming on and great catching up with you. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Zag. You can catch all past episodes and there's a lot over 140 or so and all the places where you get podcasts apple podcasts spotify soundcloud stitcher all the places so until next time we'll catch you soon